0: Welcome to Who Needs School. We often hear about how our youth in today's world are struggling with depression and anxiety and mental health issues. What does that exactly mean for schools? And how should schools be responding to that in the future? So everybody looks to schools to address issues like this. Today's interview is with extraordinarily thoughtful leader michelle nevin levine the principal at san ignatius college preparatory in san francisco enjoy a warm welcome to our guest today michelle nevin levine the principal of san ignatius college preparatory in san francisco now san ignatius is a one of about 58 jesuit high schools across the country I think if it's not the biggest one, I think it might be one of the largest Jesuit high schools in the country and one of only, I think, 13 that are co-ed. But to get us started, Michelle, just for listeners who may not be familiar with Jesuit schools, can you talk about what we are as a Jesuit school a bit?
1: Yeah, sure. I can, I can do. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the time today. I would say it, it kind of blends into how I decided to get into education to begin with. I didn't really know there was a difference between a Jesuit high school and any other Catholic high school. And what I learned while I was in my master's program at USF was that Jesuit schools do tend to be a little bit different in their focus. People will say they're focused on the whole person. And of course, as a a Catholic school, we are focused on the whole person. But for Jesuit schools in particular, we're highly focused on engaging our students intellectually and making sure that they learn about specifically the problems that exist in our society, the issues that other people suffer with. We want them to know about what's happening in the world, build up their skill set so that they can develop some really good coping skills and skills around being leaders and hopefully bring what they've learned while they're at school out into the world to help resolve problems later on. And I felt like that was a particularly interesting focus to have for young people, given what we already know, which is that at any given time in our society, our hope always lies within educating our youth. So I was really attracted to that as a young person when I was starting to try and figure out where I fit in.
0: Because your training, your background you know, was with psychology and counseling primarily, right? And so like, how, how did... How was that journey for you and then how did you kind of navigate that towards education
1: right i was i was a developmental psych major as an undergrad i always knew i wanted to work with kids but actually i thought i wanted to work with with young kids primarily and then when i was in my master's program i was studying counseling psychology and educational counseling was the main focus I did know that I wanted to work in schools. And for me, it was about not just wanting to sit in an office as a therapist, having an individual relationship and conversation with students and or families, but really being able to have a more involvement in their, their everyday life, You know, knowing and understanding their context and being able to see the big picture that exists for students and families today. So that led me um, to an internship. Here in the high school, and I was very intimidated by teenagers at first. I mm. thought that that wasn't going to be my thing. I think I was twenty-five when I started here, right? So, but immediately I found out that that this is where I wanted to be. I, I love teenagers. I love the way that their brains work. You know, they're so interesting and creative. And from one minute to the next, or I should say, from one period to the next. They can change from being like really happy, excited and overjoyed about something to being indignant, you know, and upset from one hour to the next. And I thought, what an interesting period of time in one's life as they're trying to grow and figure out who they are and how they fit in. So, so that led me here to SI. And I never thought I would stay, but fell in love with the people and most, most particularly the students and just never found my way out.
0: <laughs> how, how about becoming a, a, a principal? Like, what you know? Did you ever think that that was something you aspired to? And, and what's that no. been like for you?
1: Oh no, I, I never had a. I never spent much time thinking about being a principal. I really liked working with students and families. I found it, my my job moves were always pretty dependent upon thinking or feeling like there was some piece of the school that needed to change. And then like looking around me and trying to pay attention to who was stepping up or who was most prepared to take on those challenges and being surprised to find out in some of those cases that I was the one who was most prepared
0: <laughs> so, um,
1: to my discouragement. But I became, I was a counselor for 13 years and then I became a dean of students because I, I looked at discipline and its connection to mental health. And I thought, God, we really could be doing things differently and we could be working in a more restorative manner when it comes to um, dealing with issues around our students and their behavior, and what might that look like, that became kind of exciting for me to think about. So I became a dean, went back to be the director of counseling for a little while, and the the counseling department needed some building up as mental health issues were exploding. And any educator will tell you that mental health issues have, have exploded, particularly from Gosh, I don't, 2009 on, but 2012 was really when social media came on the scene in full force and depression and anxiety are, are very, very common in schools now. So the opportunity to become principal was really just centered around that, hmm. knowing that I was in a place where finally I'd been here long enough and knew enough about how the entire school works together, co-curriculars, academic and spirituality and faith and how we might be able to implement change systematically to, to be able to have a positive influence on, on teenagers, their mental health and growth and development overall.
0: And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that specifically, because I, I think that'll be the heart of what I think you can contribute to this conversation about the role of schools and what's the future of schools look like. Mm-hmm. But we're, I mean, we're literally on the heels, God willing, of, of this COVID experience, for almost two years. Yeah. We're recording this on February 28th, and the state of California came out today saying that schools don't have to enforce mask mandates anymore, although I think San Francisco schools are, at least for the public schools. What are what are some of the lessons you learned during these last two years in this COVID world?
1: Okay, so, so many. You know, there's, there's things I've learned from an educational standpoint, right, when it comes to like the resiliency of teachers and just An incredible amount of respect for what our teachers have done, did during that time, and have done since to improve the lives of our students during COVID. They really, really stepped up to the plate and learned new things about themselves and their own abilities when it came to, of course, use of technology. But also, it's been interesting to see, to watch teachers cut down on non-essential assignments, to really Mm -hmm. evaluate for themselves what are the most critical things that our students need to know about. And what, as a teacher, would I feel most proud of if at the end of this COVID year, for example, they really knew and understood what are the main takeaways and honing in on those particular areas of their curriculum and and getting rid of some of what we might now consider excess, right? Mm -hmm. That's been incredible to watch. I've been really inspired by that. I think the other thing, the only other thing that I would mention right now, there's some some things that are yet to be seen. We knew and predicted that students would be socially and emotionally and academically behind, so to speak, as a result of, of COVID, that there's no way for students to, to, to grow, to be able to grow in the same way that they generally would without the isolation if they were not in isolation, right? So we knew that. But educationally, what I saw was that many students actually did just fine academically. Like if you're an introvert or if you're a traditional learner, learning online wasn't that bad for you. For those who are really extroverted and where person-to-person engagement is critical for their learning, it was really hard. Like waking up in your pajamas and turning on Zoom and just showing up, was one thing, but then to be asked to stay engaged in your learning was another. So, so some kids did fine, and some kids didn't do didn't do very well educationally. But socially and emotionally, they're all behind.
0: Yeah, that that's, that's mm-hmm. it's like an, a grand experiment in the importance of schools in our civic society, right? Yes. Because it's because it yes. they're socialized there, and they're in contact with their peers. And, you know, get to experience things with people that are different than them on a, on a regular basis. They yeah. get, you know, their behaviors modeled by upperclassmen. You know, you're a freshman, you're always looking up to the upperclassmen, how they behave and what they do for for, for good or ill. But that's how how we come social. It's like a grand experiment. What happens if you just like put that on pause for, you know, 12 yeah. to 18 months?
1: Absolutely. So, so definitely, the the expectations we had around mental health, like depression and anxiety, rise being on the rise. Th- those have come true. There's there's no doubt about it. There's where our our support service staffs are very very busy. Our coaches and our teachers are very busy caring for the students on a personal level. But the other thing is that socially, I think you've probably heard me say this, Joe, before. But at the beginning of this school year, when We meet with our classes individually, and I met with each class along with the deans, and we just talk about the theme of the year, what our hopes are for them, and some of the upcoming events and things to look forward to at this convocation. And then I generally address them around any issues that might be pertinent to their class. And this year, I looked out at the juniors and I thought they were sophomores. Hmm. And I was positive that they were sophomores at the beginning of the school year and it wasn't because they physically didn't grow or mature. They looked like juniors physically. It was because of the way that they were situated still sitting in homogenous groups, right? There wasn't a lot of mixing. I could point out to the crowd and I could tell you, if you said, where are the football kids sitting or where are the tennis girls sitting or where is, you know, whatever, name a club, name an affinity group, they weren't mixing. And that's really, really uncommon by the time you're juniors to see that. And I was able to call that out for them and say, this is not to be insulting in any way, shape or form, but I can see that things are different already and that they're gonna be different. Also, what we have seen for sure is that discipline issues, the discipline issues we're dealing with look much like middle school discipline issues. Hmm. So they're making a lot of mistakes because they're missing those social cues. There was this gap and where you, you and I've probably talked about this before around like moral development in the teenage years and we kind of move from a place where you're mostly concerned about yourself and like, am I going to get caught? Will I be punished? And that starts to move towards a place where your moral development kicks in and it's, it sends you messages like, it's not, it's less about how is this going to affect me and more about, I don't want to hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're seeing that it's taking a lot longer to, to, for, because of social reasons for, for us to help them to know, grow and understand into, in, in a place where they know how to treat each other.
0: So and, there's a had- lot of
1: middle school issues, all that
0: got to kind of wonder if you're good if we, you know can backfill that emotional immaturity like what will they know. ever recover right you know is our yeah. is there just you know is there this when they, when they're 35 they're going to be that group or something like that you yeah, know yeah,
1: yeah, i know they're going to be some arrested development around that and yeah. and i and i hope not you know i wouldn't be in this business if i wasn't hopeful that yeah, we course. could you know that we could help to institute some change and inspire kids to grow and learn. And there's been a lot of that that's been happening, but I'll just say it's nothing that overly concerns me. The mental health stuff over concerns me a lot. The moral development, the social development, I have to believe will come over time and just yeah. at a slower pace.
0: So I want to go back to something you mentioned just to, to dig into it a little bit, because I think it's it's one of the interesting lessons from, from this time. You talked about how our, our teachers were really able to adapt. And, mm-hmm. you know, like you mentioned specifically that they were able to cut out some non-essential stuff. Right. Um, can you either expand on that or, or something else that perhaps you've seen as teachers had to pivot and pivot quickly at the beginning, but over that longer stretch of time, how that, you know, that experience could potentially change how, you know, their pedagogy and how they deliver the curriculum.
1: Yeah, I, you would... I think that what we anticipated at the beginning of COVID, as we saw that teachers, even our teachers who we, most, we would not have expected to be able to pivot, as we saw that they could do it, we thought, wait, maybe this is really something that we need to latch on to, right? That as soon as we get back into teaching in person, we need to offer lots of spaces and places where kids can grow online. I still think that's coming because we know we have talented people who actually love teaching that way. But we definitely grew to understand that now is not the time. Now is the time for our teenagers to keep them in front of us as much as we possibly can. So we have very few online offerings, Joe. And I had expected that by now we'd we'd have more. We'd see like, hey, we can do this. Let's just do it. It's really efficient. I think we will in the future because we already know how to do it. And we will be even better, like in the in the next five years. But we're only going to do it with people who who can actually teach that way and students who who enjoyed learning that way. And we will certainly not allow for anyone to do that full time. Does that make yeah. sense?
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. And I and on the on the student side, I know of some students who actually did better. Academically, oh, yeah. and part of it might have been it. I think people probably worried were the classes watered down, or they a little bit easier, giving kids a break because of the, the under the circumstances. But I, I also think that they weren't thrown into the social tidal wave that high school can be, or their brains yes. are on on fire socially, and they're d- d- distracted from their studies, where they were kind of forced to hone in and actually complete yes. their assignments and study for tests and all that kind of stuff.
1: They had more time for it, and more and, and less distractions. You point to that, you know, and you're absolutely right. One of the things too is that, let's just say, and I, you know, that at the by the end of sophomore year, a good percentage of our kids—I won't give a percentage, but a good decent percentage of our kids have experimented or dabbled in use of marijuana and/or alcohol or other drugs. Right? That COVID definitely delayed that. Yeah. It's yeah. a really good thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It definitely delayed that. And when those when those things are introduced into the teenage years, for kids who who certainly kids who have mental health problems or develop addictions, that is absolutely what gets in the way and derails them from their academics. Mm-hmm. So I do think that for some of our kids, that delay has been really an important one and a helpful one and help them yeah, to stay interesting. in that during that time. Yeah.
0: Now you, you mentioned, you know, one of the uh, opportunities you saw in becoming a principal was to help the school kind of grow and evolve in terms of its mental health. And that's right. maybe for lack of a better word. It's been your, your platform or vision as mm-hmm. the leader of the school. And, and I want you to, you know, to speak specifically to that, but also find I always find it fascinating, you know. The uh, people will point to schools as the elixir for all problems, right? So if there's yeah. some some social issue that needs to be dealt with, well, it has to happen in the schools because it's one it's one shared, you know, universally shared experience that That's that right. uh, we have as, as citizens of this country. So what what do you see the role of schools being for uh, promoting students, you know, resilience and mental health? in, in yeah. kind of building those factors, and what's you know how specifically do you see us uh designing that at, at the high school level
1: that's a that's a great question so i'll I'll go back to when I first got here, Joe, which was nineteen ninety five and I worked with you know what seemed like a big staff at the time, but I think there were about eight counselors in the school, and the school is a little bit smaller um But now we're you know fifteen hundred and five high school students, and we've got eighteen people on our counseling staff, and no one up there just walked out of the classroom or a coaching position to be a counselor like in the past. We used to use like, hey, you're a good person, you're great with kids, you can listen. You certainly, you know, we used a lot of bright people to fill those roles, and now you absolutely have to have some experience in training and counseling to be a counselor at our school, and I think that that's critically important because we used to say in those early years, this is not a mental health institution. That's not what we do. This is a school. That was very common to hear people say that.
0: Yeah. We don't offer, we're not a therapeutic school. We don't offer that assessment, right?
1: Right, right, right. And what would it be like if today I said, hey, we're not we're not here to educate our kids on diversity, equity, and issues of inclusion. Like we're a school, we're math, reading, writing. What if I said that? What would that feel like to people? Does that make any sense that we wouldn't be teaching our kids, engaging our students in those important conversations? And so we began to look at it that way, very deliberately around mental health as mental health issues they didn't give us a chance to breathe for a while. Right. Uh We had lost some students to suicide. Things became really overwhelming really fast. And we were forced um, to listen to what essentially society was saying to us, which is like, we need your help with our kids. And again, A lot has to do with the the growth in mental health problems in our country. I could go on and on about that forever, but you know what they are, like pressures Mm -hmm. to get into college, constant saturation through social media um, and other means with negative um, news, school shootings, right, racial reckoning, politics, name it. All of those things are saturating our students' news feeds all the time. And, and then there's just trying to be a teenager and dealing with like feelings of isolation and insecurities and all that regular stuff that teenagers deal with became really overwhelming really fast. And kids are not in a position, their brains aren't fully developed and they don't have good relationships with their parents yet. And so as this, it became more and more obvious to us as a school that we better do something about this. And first of all, make sure we're not contributing. And second mm-hmm. of all, begin to build up our protective factors around it. So that has become my focus as a principal is to build up protective factors around mental health.
0: And we've, and that's what we've learned, right? Is that, and I think we probably have as a country that issues around mental health or depression are are like a disease, you know, or for every family has got somebody in their, you know, lineage that has some mental health issues. And that's whispered about at the, you know, the Thanksgiving table, no one talks about it directly, but we recognize it's a real, you know, it's just like, it's a disease like cancer. There are things we can do to recognize symptoms of it and perhaps treat it or, you know, do, do things ahead of time to prevent it. Right. So what what do you, what, how does that look like for a high school? How do you, how do you design things to help kids build, Build that so the,
1: the, we've we've done a really good job. A lot of work in the last ten years around helping to train our teachers and our coaches to recognize the signs of mental illness in our teens. It can be difficult for teenagers, and you know that because teenagers are, are naturally moody, naturally up and down. We all experience depression from time to time, and certainly we all experience anxiety. So how do we know? How do we look? Um, to try and find out whether or not this is those things are really interfering with the daily life of our kids. And then what do we do once we know that that's happening? So we've got a really great staff that responds well when we know what's going on. But the other thing that we need to do and all schools need to do is really pay attention to protective factors, building up protective factors. And that's around making sure that students have adults that support them and that they know that they can identify. People in their school who they would ask for help when and if they need it. They need to have positive peer groups, right? So you have to offer opportunities, not just for them to be able to play sports, which is an incredible protective factor, but they need to have clubs and an affinity group to belong to, a space where they feel truly accepted loved, right? There needs to be a real commitment to education. So people are under the impression that because I talk about mental health, that what I want is for teachers to be easy on our kids, stop challenging them so much. They've got enough on their plates. It's actually the opposite. In order for um, a teenager to feel like they're successful, like I'm smart enough to resolve problems, not just problems in the world, but my own problems, which sometimes are even more difficult to resolve, they have to have examples of having challenges sitting right in front of them and working out those challenges. And whether it's on their own or even better off in a group with support from their teacher or their peers. So having a, a, a curriculum that's that's serious. And, and intellectually
0: stimulating, right? Yeah, yep. has,
1: has to be absolutely has to be. And then in general, having a positive school environment. So that means they should always have events to look forward to. That's hard on adults. So I think in schools, hmm. you know, adults give up on that quickly because it's absolutely exhausting to plan fun and safe events for kids that keep them engaged. But it's really critical so that they have not just pride in their school, but a sense that they belong to something and to, and to some people. And for us, that that's St. Ignatius College Prep.
0: Yeah. And what, what are some of those, like, can you highlight that with some of the examples? Like, what are some of the things you and your team have designed
1: yeah. specifically
0: to, to, you know, create a social atmosphere for kids to belong to?
1: Right. So in every, during the, the freshman year, every freshman takes curriculum, which is basically social emotional curriculum through their wellness class. And that includes mindfulness practices. Hmm. Right. So mindfulness has become really, really important, particularly for our teenagers, helps them to slow down, be self-reflective reflective and teachers are teaching that daily to our freshmen. And then again, we, we rather insist that they have co-curricular involvement. And then our teachers, I mean, I'm sorry, our coaches are encouraged and supported in professional development so that they can learn how to help to build up self-esteem in our kids. And also That can help our kids to avoid issues that come up all the time around sports that might look like bullying or that might look like racism and other things. How do we cut down on the things that really hurt our children and get in their feeling a sense of belonging at their school? Again, I mentioned we need they need to have adults to look forward to and they need to have a really solid support system. So people in the counseling department who know what they're doing. We've got three trained and licensed therapists. So it's no joke. They consult with us as adults so that we know how to help our families. And then they work directly with families and students who are most at risk. And ignore the faith piece. of. I, 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 sometimes I avoid faith in things I know. I don't know who's listening to your podcast, but I have to say that for us, faith is really critical. It serves as an incredible protective factor that that feeling of communion with your peers and with adults and a belief in God, or even if you, if you're not sure how you feel about God, but we're helping our students to move towards a place where they can feel connected to something bigger than themselves is incredibly helpful when it comes to hmm. mental health.
0: You also, you and your team done a great job of creating some events, that I think of like a, we call it casino night, and that's not the official word for it, but you get right. fourteen hundred kids on on campus simply to have fun. You know, mm-hmm. we we get so serious these days, and there's so much pressure to, uh, to get into a great college, and you know how that's going to pave the the path for your rest of your life and all that jazz. High school can it's okay for high school to be fun, and probably yeah. should be, and how important that is as a social emotional human being to, to have have fun. You guys have done a great job of creating those events. And I, and I think sometimes people think that's by accident, but it's I, it's really by design.
1: Yeah, it's by design. It's deliberate. And it's exhausting.
0: <laughs> for the adults, not for the yes. kids, right? Yeah, that's oh, the... the... the
1: adults are, and of course, they're involved in the planning and all of that. They, they're they involved every step of the way. Our student council and and our they're affinity fantastic. group members everybody gets involved, which is fantastic.
0: We but were you got
1: to uh, you gotta have some fun stuff to do.
0: I was uh, really impressed the other night. Our, uh, both of us attended a Black Student Union Showcase. It was the 50th anniversary of us having a Black Student Union here at SI. And I was so impressed with the, the dance routines the students did. What I was most impressed with is that the students choreographed those. What you It know, wasn't some adult choreographing the, the dance routines. It was the student, primarily one student. But you know, I was really um, very <laughs> impressed by that. Hey, you've got a considerable experience as a, you know, as a counselor and your background in, in psychology and certainly your experience, really profound experience as a counselor Dean and now a principal and a mother of, of two teenage boys. What what advice do you have for parents trying to raise teenagers today?
1: Oh, oh my gosh. It's, it's so hard. The hardest job. Being a principal is not, not easy, but- Being a parent is harder and there's probably a lot of things that I say it's, it's everybody needs to hear something different, right? And it depends on the kid. So, you know, if you're trying to inspire your kid to, to work in school because they're, they're not motivated, you're going to be saying different, I'm going to give you different advice than I am. If you're trying to get um, your child to, to stop being a perfectionist. Right. But there's some standard advice that, that I give to parents. One would be the most obvious one, Joe, is, and I know you and I have talked about this before when we're having conversations about our own children. Parents, please stop trying to fix your child's problems. It's so difficult to stop getting involved when your kid seems to be in a jam. I think our natural instinct as parents is just to jump in and protect them. And it's it's really harmful. And As they get older, you really need to um, think more about what you're you're allowing for your child to learn on his or her own. I say to parents at the beginning of every year, I have a son at this school. He is a junior, and I pray that he will experience setbacks here. He will get a bad grade for sure. He will he will get cut from a team, and he has like these things have happened to him, and they're very painful and they're hard to watch. But if he doesn't experience setbacks here how is he going to know that he can survive them?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: How will he know what to do and who he can depend on where he can go, how he can bounce back if he doesn't have those experiences in a safe place and high school is a safe place for him. So I really mean that. That's, that's the number one thing I say. The Mm -hmm. other, I'll give you two more. How's that? You can cut me off if you want. Uh, The other one is listen. Doesn't that sound basic? Like listen, but, When our kids come home from school, and they often do, they don't come home like joyfully in their teenage years to tell us about all the wonderful people that smiled at them that day, right? That's not the way it works. They'll talk about a teacher or something that was unfair. They didn't even tell us this was going to be on the test, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we as parents have a tendency to say, well, you know, to give solutions, well, here's what you should do next. And- Particularly if you don't feel like you have a very strong connection with your child, the best thing that you can do literally is listen and reflect back what they've said. So that looks like today was a terrible day. My friend was talking about me behind my back and I found out. And your response needs to be, that sounds like a really hard day. Not, well, what did you do to cause her to talk about, no, just- Who
0: wasn't? I'll talk to him, to him, him right? right? Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: No, I want to know who, who hurt my baby, right? Yeah, and I want to know right? why, and I want to be defensive and I want to build them up. But you don't actually build them up with false, making false statements about yeah. who they are. How do they view it? What have they already tried when it comes to resolving that issue? And do they even want your advice? But we tend to just jump right in and try, or right we'll tell stories about our own life, right? Yeah.
0: Nobody,
1: <laughs> nobody, I can't believe this, Joe, but my kids actually don't want to know about my kids. <laughs>
0: Not, Not yet, yet. They, they will. They don't want
1: to know about anything I've learned, uh, but they don't. they want to know that I can hear them, you know, yeah. that I'm there for them. And that goes uh, a long way.
0: I find Wait, too that the, on the, on the listening piece, it has, you know, you're the mother of two boys and two of my three were boys yeah. and all we got out of them for four years was, yeah, I got it. You know, that's it. That's it. And yeah. it's asking, asking the questions, you know, really asking yeah. questions that do kind of penetrate those things a little bit and to then, get them yeah,
1: demonstrating some conflict in them. Right. Like that's a big yeah. one for me. That's a big one that I'll say is, If a child seems like they they don't have a lot of confidence in themselves and how they might be able to resolve a particular problem or issue that's going on. And let's say it's not a serious, we're not talking about, you know, that there, this is a child who's having suicidal ideation. I'm just talking about, you know, a child who's struggling in general demonstrate, or even if they do have a mental health issue, but it doesn't matter, demonstrate you have confidence in their ability to get through it. And that's often hard too, but I pull up examples from like, I'll say to my oldest, I remember when you were in preschool and I actually never thought I would drop you off one day without you crying, but you, Mm -hmm. you did it, it, right? Like that's that's a dumb example, but pull up examples from their past where, you know, that they've overcome something that's difficult and make sure that you acknowledge to them. Yes, life can be really tough, but so are you.
0: Yeah, and that's a good lesson for parents because right. when you're dropping them off every day and he's crying, you actually think he will you will never drop him off without him crying, right? How are you going to get through that? But you do, right? You do.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I guess the last thing I would say in terms of advice, and this is, they're all hard, is model it. So whatever you want for your kid, that thing that you really want for them, you want them to have friends. Like you feel like they're, they don't see themselves as the center of, of the problems that they're having in their social relationships, for example. You just really need to check yourself and make sure you're modeling that for mm-hmm. your child. What kind of a friend are you, right? Do you forgive? Do you ask for forgiveness and apologize? All of those things, like model it, right? When I get home and I've had a rough day. I have to really fight from not grabbing for that glass of wine, right? But I don't want mm-hmm. my kids to learn that the way to cope after a bad day is to yell, "I've had a terrible day," and then guzzle wine.
0: You know, <laughs>
1: yeah. You wait till they are out of the house, and then get your wine or whatever. But you know, modeling it is really, really important for teenagers.
0: That's a great point. I, I, I remember as my kids were growing up, being very conscious of uh, socializing and have you know friends that were guys i wasn't it wasn't just work and family but i had a you know really it was conscious about modeling a healthy social life uh for them and yeah. also how they you know how they, to, to treat my wife their mother you know that right. modeling how you're gonna you know treat your spouse and another adult in the in a family situation yeah absolutely hey um michelle this is outstanding thank you so much for the time i um doing a fantastic job. And for those who don't know Michelle, she loves our students fiercely and really is a really a premier principal in this in this line of work. So thank you for the time, Michelle.
1: Thank you for saying that, Joe. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Who Needs School. If you have any comments on this topic or have any suggestions on future topics, please email me at joevollert at gmail.com. Thank you.